Can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book? You know, novels are a special form of literature because they are capable of deadly serious psychological and philosophical explorations of the human predicament. And I think what happens when you lose a culture of reading, everything becomes ephemeral and everything is forgotten very, very quickly. We know that the people who are leading are the good communicators and communication is mastery of language. The beauty about reading though, is it begins to chisel away at that stone that blocks the cave door. Welcome to Reading in the Common Good, a new podcast from the Trinity Forum, where we discuss the enriching and humanizing activity of reading deeply and well. We encourage you to put the ideas discussed in today's conversation into practice by hosting your own reading group. Check out ttf.org slash book club for help getting started. In today's episode, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder will speak with author and professor Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson and Reverend Claude Acho, who is a writer, pastor, and teacher. Together, they'll explore the ways that reading, particularly reading in community, can be a spiritual practice and a source of regeneration. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation. It was recorded on March 18th of this year. You can find the full conversation with video and transcript on our website. Here's Cherie Harder. Our topic today might seem a bit surprising or counterintuitive. We often think of reading for pleasure or for information, even for recreation. But our guest today will advocate a radical reorientation to consider reading not merely as a form of entertainment or personal or professional necessity, but as a spiritual practice and a path to a renewed imagination and desire for holiness and justice to read for regeneration. And our guest today will also offer ways of reading a variety of works that, in the words of one of them, joins the literary and the theological in ways that can prod readers from all backgrounds to sharper theological thinking and more faithful living. It is both a challenging claim and an enticing invitation, one that is served with energy, insight, and erudition by our guest today, Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson and Reverend Claude Acho. Jessica Hooten-Wilson is an author, professor, and the Louise Callan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas. In 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize for the Humanities from the Dallas Institute for Humanities and Culture, and is the author of several works, including Learning the Good Life from Great Hearts and Minds, which came before, Giving the Devil His Due, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in Arts and Culture, and her new release, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary of Saints, which we've invited her to discuss today. Joining her is Reverend Claude Acho, who is a writer, pastor, and teacher, and serves as the pastor of the Church of Res the Resurrection in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's taught both writing and African-American literature at the college level, and is a regular writer and podcast contributor for Think Christian, Christ and Pop Culture, The Gospel Coalition, and The Witness. His first full-length book, entitled Reading Black Books, published by Brazos, is due out on May 1st. So Jessica and Claude, welcome. Great to see you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Such a delight. So let's just start at the very beginning in that your two fascinating books make distinct but related claims. 
Jessica, you have argued that reading literature can, in your words, baptize the imagination in unique ways. And Claude, you've asserted or argued that reading Black literature unearths ways that God's truth addresses the Black experience, which can prod readers towards sharper thinking as well as a more faithful life. Uh, or as you even say on the very cover, making our life and faith more whole and just. So I'd love to hear from both of you, what led you to undertake these projects and how does reading literature either baptize our imagination or make us more whole and just? I'm sure I really understand those things going together. So I'm, I'm sure when Claude unpacks this, he's, we're gonna just be in sync here, but it'll be fun to maybe you know tether out some of the differences too. For me, I wrote from personal experience of how I got to know who God was from the time I was a little kid, just being introduced to ways of knowing the Lord through scripture, but then also a lot of my other reading was opening up my life experiences. And I found as I got older that that passion hadn't just, you know, it hadn't dissipated for me, but it had for a lot of my friends and more and more it became, well, you're a literature professor. That's why you like books, but no one else was reading books. And so I was in a lot of church communities where reading was not a constant practice for them, not even reading the Bible. I mean, at one point I, I had a conversation with someone who said, well, I don't read the Bible, but I read Christian living, which is, you know, the Bible in a more accessible form. And I thought, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> it's not. We're actually supposed to be reading the bible as a lens then for also reading literature for reading the world and reading literature becomes a practice that actually opens us up to reading the bible more so these things are supposed to be constantly in conversation they're making us so much of who we are and then how we see and if we're going to try to move towards a vision that god has of the world then we need a lot of different eyes because on our own we can't see how god sees right and so it's joining a communion of eyes. It's it's really professing the communion of saints that we talk about in the creed every single week. And reading is part of that participation. I love that. And yeah, even that, that phrase, uh, you know, communion of eyes, you know, that was sort of the inspiration for, for my book as well. You know, the transformative power that happens when we attend to works like Morrison and Ellison and, and Wright and Baldwin. There's so much power there. And so I wanted to try to be a guide to those texts and then to put them in conversation, mix the close reading with Christian reflection and to bring the sort of power and the questions that these wise writers are, are engaging and then bring them into the light and sense of God's kingdom, where we can see affirmation, correction, extension, depth, uncovering, and, and just a, a more holistic formation for what it means to, to love Jesus, to love others, and to be faithfully engaged in a, you know, in a world that's, that's complicated. Yeah, both your books follow a, a sort of somewhat similar kind of organizational structure. You look at a variety of of different readings and kind of tease out some of the themes, but you both deliberately have chosen literature. It's all story, all literature. And so I'm curious about that and whether you think that there is something unique about story that teaches us or reveals things that not just argument or analysis can't, but perhaps even other creative forms such as poetry or painting can't. Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting to think about, you know, story and then to connect that to so much of what both of our books are doing, which is engaging with novels. You know, I was thinking about that. I, I do engage with a couple of a couple of pieces of poetry, but primarily novels, and that's exclusive for, for Scandal of Holiness. And so, you know, I was thinking about this and just the power of novels 
to immerse you in a story and to remind you that we are creatures that live inside of a story, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And, you know, I was thinking about uh, Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man, which is one of the books that, that I discuss in reading Black books. You know, he, he gave this lecture about, I think it was titled, you know, the novel as like the tool for American democracy, you know, mm -hmm. so very like ambitious, you know, and so, uh, you know, bold claims and all that. But I think there's something to it where he talks about, you know, novels are a special form of literature because they don't just have the power to entertain, but they immerse you in something. And uh, he, he uses the phrase, they're, they're capable of deadly, serious, psychological, and philosophical explorations of the human predicament um, is the way that he talks about it. And I think there's really something to that. And, and when we... Um, when we read novels, you know, we have this concentrated experience, right? We're, we're, we're immersed in the language in the world that somebody else has crafted for us. And so because of that, there's, there's so much power there and which is why reading well and and practicing that as a virtue can be so generative and transformative just because of the form of the novel and the connection to story. Yeah. If, if I could tack mm -hmm. on to just what, what I love what you're saying, because I, I think that's true. You're being immersed in it, which is why our books are second to the novels, mm -hmm. right? So uh, Lauren yes. Winter points out in the foreword, she says, you know, Jessica talks about the power of novels, but then she wrote a book that's not a novel. It's totally true. <laughs> but but what we're doing wouldn't exist without the novels, whereas you don't need our books, right? The novels are the primary, the story is the primary, but you want to have the novels in conversation. You want to have the, a teacher for the novels or with the novels. And so we're the second role in that, right? It's the immersion and the, the imagination that happens first with the stories. And then second, what does it mean? And the dialogue and the intellect gets involved. And um, but that's the second part of it. Absolutely. So much. Um, yeah. And I want to unpack that reading well in just a second. But first, I kind of want to pick up on something that you said, Claude, maybe I can toss this question to you first and then later to Jessica, which is given the formative power. Uh, that's sort of inherent in the novel. Anytime there is formative power, there's also deformative power. That power can be used in different ways. And you have actually picked in your book a lot of very difficult works, you know, that have a lot of darkness there reflecting, you know, the realities uh, that took place, you know, even brutality. And so would be interested in hearing how you distinguish between good books and bad books, formative books for the good and distorting or deformative books? That is a great question that I wrestle with. And I'm excited to hear Jessica answer in a few moments. I, th I think, you know, so part of this is, I want to say, becomes a little bit subjective. But I think on the other hand, it comes down to dealing with is this book is, is the novel like really dealing with the truth? Is this speaking from a vision that is actually in line with the truth about human beings and the human condition. Uh, that that doesn't mean it needs to be uh, doctrinally uh, aligned the way you look at a statement of faith, but it, is this running with the grain of how the world really is? I, I look for that. I, I also uh, distinguish if a, if a work is really ideological in a way that actually isn't isn't truthful to to the complexity of, of being a human. I also, you know, the, maybe the best way to think about this is just bad writing. You know, stay away from bad writing, <laughs> and, and then you're usually you're usually uh, in in safe quarters. I'll I also think about, I think James Baldwin is a good example of this because the way that he writes, he writes difficult things, but usually always writes with a, a view of mercy towards human beings. And so, so he avoids some of the ideological dynamic where you can paint people too clearly as 
complete virtue or complete villain. And he really deals with the complexity of what it means to be human. And I think that's important because we'll, we talk a lot about the power of reading is, is empathy, which we'll probably get to in some of the conversation today. But I was helped recently talking with a few professor friends when they pointed out some of the research around the dark side of empathy. I think that's actually the title of, of this, of a book. And it talked to, uh, the book speaks about how, you know, in the wrong hands, empathy can be sort of overdone and it can uh, polarize us where we become so particularized, we lose concern for the universal. And so I think uh, sometimes that's the way bad books work is not only may they be badly written, but they're so ideological. They're so running opposite the grain of the truth of the human condition that in reading them, we become so particularized that we forget the other. So, so I, I've begun to think a little bit about that. Yeah, that, that, is, that is the question that I, I find myself coming to every time I, I do engage with the text. So I'm going to distinguish between how we read versus what we read. So I'll focus on what we read because that's what you're asking. But a lot of it also has to do with how you read because really good people can read really bad books and they're going to be okay <laughs> because they know how mm. to read well. Uh, whereas people who do not know how to read well can read the best of literature and read it poorly. And it's going to have a malforming effect as well. Mm. So hopefully we'll, we'll pull yes. that out in a minute. But, but just looking at content. So the transcendentals are very helpful here. Truth, goodness, and beauty. And Claude was talking about the truth. And I think that is a necessary starting point, right? Does it tell the truth about the world? And like Claude said, it doesn't have to be a doctrinal truth, but is it lying to you about what human beings are and how you are in the world? So one of the classic examples I like to give is Disney sequels. <laughs> <laughs> you can't attack the monolith of Disney. Um, and there are some good Disney pictures and Kanto, I think is one of the most Christian movies they've ever made. But at the same time, there are stories like Ariel part two. I don't even know what the title was, but it's just telling you the fa a false idea of what authority is and the role it has in your, in your life and whether, you know, disobeying your parents is a better way to be in the world. And um, it just kind of throws out natural law. It throws out all these things that we know to be true about consequences and actions. And it does, it's not consistent with who we are. So I think we have to look at stories about if they're telling the truth according to how the world actually works. Second is goodness. So Flannery O'Connor was big on this. She thought when, you, when you're writing something, it's not that you're preaching somebody to be morally good. So you're not always trying to look for like an Aesop's fable or a life lesson out of literature. Um, but is it sentimental or pornographic? <laughs> because if it's sentimental or pornographic, those are basically the same thing in literature for Flannery O'Connor. Because what it is, if it's sentimentalized, then it's increasing emotion when the substance doesn't deserve it, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way that pornography, right? It's the sex, it's the emotional like high of sex without the substance of something strong like marriage connected to it. So the same with sentiment, like we get all these sentiments like, what was that Sarah McLaughlin commercial that used to be on where it like made you feel very heightened emotions about pets dying or something? I, you probably remember this. this was a long time ago, but I think that's just such a great example of the false emotion connected to the weak substance. And then third, Claude mentioned this kind of peripherally bad writing, beauty. Mm. Beauty is supposed to lift us towards something higher. And mm. if a book is poorly written, then it's actually killing our taste. It's, it's making us accept less than what is highest in us. It's making us immune to ugliness and starting accepting ugliness as the norm. And that's not what we're called to. We're called to always be lifting higher and not be looking lower. So bad writing, the more that you support it and the more that you get used to it, 
you're actually losing a part of yourself. You're losing um, what you were called to be and what you could be. You both have mentioned how you read. So let's just kind of jump into that uh, right now. And that you know, in many ways, implicit in both of your books is, is advocating for a particular kind of reading. And um, I think it's fair to say that it's probably a very different kind of reading uh, than we're kind of naturally acculturated to, you know, with so much uh, of our reading taking place over social media, you know, our natural tendency is to kind of quickly scan, essentially kind of strip mind the most shallow surface meaning and kind of move on. So how does one read well and how does one le read literature well? There, so I'm so glad you said naturally acculturated too, because I think there's such a distinction between natural versus our sinful proclivities. <laughs> so we've become acculturated to certain ways of reading that are not according to our nature, they're according to our sinful temptations that have become our habits that have become part of our natures in the world, but it's not our natural state. I think our natural state, if you look at children, that's not how they read. You give a kid a book and he'll read it over and over and over again until he memorizes it and knows it and can read it back to you even when he's three. So our nature is to fall in love with what is good and to repeat it until it becomes digested and fully formed in us. That's how our nature is. And then as we get older, we start getting, we teach people, we nurture them to be utilitarian, to be those who consume, who pull apart things, that we dissect it for classes and multiple choice quizzes. Um, we really destroy the natural way of reading for a different method of reading that is about use and relevancy and productivity. And those are things that are culture, but it's not the church. It's not how the church is supposed to read. It's not how the church is supposed to look. You should instead be approaching books the way you approach people. You listen, you, you shut up for an hour, right? You give of yourself and you wait to receive what they have to give. Mm -hmm. And you do that without assumptions that you don't try to misread them. You don't try to impose upon them what you would mean if you said that. You try to understand and you try to really hear what they're saying. And I think that kind of practice, if we practice with books, we might be better at engaging people. You know, Claude, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I'm gonna add like additional question uh, to that as well, which is one thing I noticed about both of your books is that you always end with discussion questions at the end of each chapter to make this easier to read communally. In addition to kind of commenting on that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how our experience of reading and reading well is changed or challenged by reading in community versus reading individually. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So on, on reading well, um, I would you know, echo what Jessica has said. And, and I think about, you know, if, if good writing takes, um, takes, you know, rewriting, good reading, I think a lot of times takes rereading as, as Jessica is talking about. And so I think about, you know, just the simple stuff of uh, slow, deliberate going back. And a lot of times, you know, if you're not interested in doing that, you know, maybe the book isn't that great, isn't that good, you know? So I think, yeah, just the patience that, that, um, that we can engage with, um, you know, and even saw my son this, this morning, you know, lying down and looking at, you know, re flipping through through the pages of something that he's seen over and over again. So just have that image in my mind while you're talking, Jessica. So, so I think, you know, slowing down, and I think that's part of the formative power of reading uh, is also how we read. And, you know, we, we immerse ourselves in, in, in the text and, and we, we take it on its own terms, I think is the other thing we, um, as you mentioned, Jessica, assume, assume the best. And, and I, I like, I think it's, you know, taking it on, taking the, the novel on its own terms and asking questions. So, you know, when you come to a place where you feel something, in in the story, you know, ask like 
think through why, why do I feel this? And then what is it, what is it in the language of the text? What is it in the action of the story? Like, what is it in the actual, um, the work itself that's producing this in me? And then to just, yeah, ask questions and, you know, what are the ideas at the heart of the story? Uh, what would I have done in this situation with this character? Well, why do I gravitate towards this character and not this other, other character? You know, how, how do I relate to the interior world uh, of, of, of this character that the writer's putting forward? Why are they putting it forward this way? Um, where's the kingdom of God in all of this? Um, those, those sort of things. And I think about, you know, again, Baldwin's novel, his debut, Go Tell It on the Mountain. You know, there's, um, you know, I think reading well in, a, in an example of a book like that is it's all told in one day. You know, so it's like, well, why, why would he do that? You know, why, why does he want to tell the story in one day? And then as you read, you realize it's all one day, but then there's flashbacks. So, so why does he give each character a flashback? What, what is he trying to do there? Uh, why does he call this section prayers of the saints? And then you, as you look and you, you notice that each flashback is tied to kind of a moment of prayer. And so when you begin to ask these sort of questions, what is he, what is he up to? How does that impact me? Uh, then I think you begin to, you're slowing down in, in, in the work rewards you and you receive a greater gift through that. And then to the point about reading in community, uh, all of that stuff is is difficult to do on your own. So you're, you're helped when you do that with others. They'll see things that you don't see. And it's, you know, just like writing is generative. Sometimes we don't, we, we don't know what we think until we write. Sometimes, you know, we don't know what we think about a story or a book and its impact on us until we talk about it with others, until we hear the way, maybe the thing that rubbed us the wrong way, we hear how that was uh, encouraging and, and how they connected with the character that, that we had a problem with. And through hearing that conversation, we realized that maybe we had a problem with that character because there's something uh, off in us, right? That, that hit a sore spot inside of us. And so I think getting to engage communally is, is really important because it slows us down. We process, and especially when, when, you know, in African-American literature, the form and the content is often difficult. And so we need to parse that out, I think, in, in community together. It just as sort of a case example of that, and I'll just sort of say as an aside, one of the things we do at the Trinity Forum are Socratic forums and reading groups, and there is such richness in hearing the different perspectives people bring to the same text. And uh, in your two books, there was one story that both of you highlighted. And I think there was only one. And it was actually a little bit surprising in that it's a, a not a particularly well-known novel, but it was Zora Neale Hurston's Moses Man of the Mountain. And so coming from your two different perspectives, you know, using very different literature, but with this one thing in common, I'd be curious about why both of you picked this work and what was so meaningful to you about it. So I fell in love with Zora when I was in college. It was something she had written. Claude's going to know probably the exact quote, but it's something she'd written where if she was treated poorly by white people because she was black and she said, I just feel bad for them that they missed out on the privilege of knowing me. And mm -hmm. for someone, you know, who was single and, you know, if I got rejected or didn't get a second date, I would just quote Zora in my head. Like, I just feel bad. They missed out on getting to know me, you know? So she was just, I, I just found her confidence so alluring. And mm -hmm. uh, she was, to me, she, the way she inquired of people, just looking at her biography, I just kind of became addicted to reading a lot of her work. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until later that I read Moses, Man of the Mountain. Um, and I'd already read three, maybe three books by her before that. And whoa, I had never heard the story of Moses told that way. 
where it just, it made me re-see the story of Moses. I actually found myself reading her work and then going back to the Bible and reading it back and forth. And so even though she is not uh, accurate to the Bible, that's not what she's trying to do, mm-hmm. it still turned people back to the word in a way that I found provocative. And so I, that's why I, I dove into it. I thought this is what good literature is supposed to do, is it's supposed to make you dialogue with the things that are true, um, with the things that are constant, you know, historical, permanent, mm-hmm. and and her book did that. And so if, I mean, I don't know how I could write this book without Zora because I've, you know, really enjoyed her literature so much. So she was definitely influential on the way that I think about good literature. But that novel in particular, when it comes to what points you back to the Bible and what gets you to be scandalized well. Yes, yes similar. You know, I, I think I, I wanted to you know, discuss this book in uh, reading black books, just because it, it was not as well known as some of her other works. And also, you know, it is such a constructive example of what it means, you know, in my reading, to participate in the story of scripture. And so that's sort of the lens that I looked at um, Moses Man of the Mountain through was sort of, you know, here, here's this writer who is doing something uh, really bold and is putting their own kind of folkloric spin on uh on the exodus story and and again i think you know as jessica mentioned you know it's not it's obviously it's not scripture and it's it's doing its own sort of thing but i think even that gesture and it's debated the way that the book is read but i think even that gesture is instructive and constructive that we need to think about what does it mean to see scripture as a living story what does it mean to part to see ourselves not as people who are detached from scripture not people who come to scripture to mine a couple of truths from you know a culture far far away and to bring them into modern life so that we can uh, be better but to really understand the whole our whole existence is caught up in this story even right now and so i think as you mentioned jessica zora's moses it it sort of it it familiarizes you with sort of like oh i'm just going to take exodus on you know i know that already you know you read that book and then you're like do i really know exodus do i really know numbers do i do i really know this stuff and you have to go back because she writes it in, and puts her own spin on it, but has clearly, clearly studied the text and made changes in line with her prerogative. And she's done it as somebody who, who knows the material that she's working with. And so I, I found it really as a sort of touchstone to talk about the importance of the Exodus in the Black Christian experience, which is then the importance uh, of the Exodus in the Christian experience. And that's instructive for, for all of us. And I think it gives us encouragement on what it means to see ourselves as participating in the story of God even now. You know, we're at a time when reading in general is in decline. Reading literature is in particular decline. By all the different studies, each generation is reading less than the one before it, comprehending what they read less, reading for pleasure less, reading literature less. Of course, this seems like there's not only kind of educational and civic consequences of that, but as um, As people who worship the word, presumably there are spiritual consequences of that as well. It would be curious uh, what both of you believe the implications are for ourselves and our soul, as well as our society. And then uh, any thoughts or guidance you have um, for people who may be interested in rethinking, looking into literature for themselves or for their children. Yeah, I think this is so big (laughs) because right now, reading is seen as privileged. I, you know, I'm writing a book right now and reading for the love of God. And when I was like sharing it with someone, this idea, they're like, oh, that's so privileged that you're going to write this book about, you know, suburban housewives sitting around getting to read. 
you know, it's a, I was a classist. I was being accused of being a classist to, to think about reading. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm really trying to protect humanity here. <laughs> I mean, what I believe is that, can you imagine anything more countercultural right now than someone to sit and really listen to another person through a book to engage what they're having to say, to not be distracted by technology, to not be focused on busyness and productivity and work and not be focused on just hedonism or entertaining myself or patting myself on the back with what I'm doing, but just reading and enjoying that. I mean, we were made, Vegan Groin says, we were made to be lovers, not laborers. So we're not made primarily just as workers, um, but we are made to behold God. We are made to enjoy God. We are made to enjoy one another, to love one another. And so the practice of reading keeps us in that humble, charitable stance that needs to be part of our makeup. It needs to be our habit and our practice. And the more that we remove that practice and we only focus on what is useful and what is going to make us good consumers and producers, we're losing what it means to be a human being. So I can't think of anything more countercultural than to convince people, spend more time reading. It looks wasteful to you and it might feel weird when you first start back to it, but it's not. It's actually reminding you of what you were made for. Mm. Yes, I love that. And then I think if you can link that into uh, the communal piece that we were talking about earlier, if you can read and then read together with others and uh, and and build that sort of community around this formative um, life giving practice, I, I think you know that's that's where we see uh, growth and connectivity and, and flourishing in a lot of ways. When I when I think about you know um, what we lose when when we're not reading, echo uh, everything Jessica said, and also I think about you know we lose you know if if part of the gift of literature is empathy, you know we 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 obviously we lose that. I think about uh, Martha Nussbaum. She called, she talks about the power of of reading creates these links of possibility between people, and so so we we lose those. And and, and you know it, it doesn't take a genius among us to see that uh, we we've lost that already. You know, and we're we're deeply at odds and we're deeply confused and we're deeply polarized. Um, and so we, we need anything that we can get that reorients us back to, you know, what we're made to be together. So, so reading is a gift in that sense. And then I think too, you know, just the incarnational act of reading, it, it, it helps us be better lovers of, of our neighbors, lovers of the world, lovers of God, because I think so much of Philippians two, obviously is a passage that uh, is so beautiful to the Christian gospel about Jesus looking not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And, but Paul gives that encouragement to, to the Philippians, to his audience. And I think about reading and when you read, right, you are looking to the interest of another you're, mm -hmm. you're immersing in a perspective and in a story you're inhabiting something that you don't have total control of you, you engage with it. But, but as Jessica has said, you, you sit, you submit and you grow in humility by, by entering this world. And, and that forms us and that, that will help us as we actually do that, um, and embodied flesh uh, with one another, and and if I could even draw back to you know Ellison, who I love, he, he, in that in that speech that I referenced earlier, he, he talked about uh, America being in moral decay and basically wanted to blame it all on the novelists that we're not telling the truth in our stories, and so um, so it's kind of half our fault. And maybe today um, the truth is being told in our stories, and and maybe uh, it's our fault because we're distracted and uh, and we're not taking up together. And I really would emphasize together because it's hard to do on our own, but taking up together this task of, of reading, which is one gift among many that can help us flourish. Yeah. So can I just add one more thing? So that's, this is great. <laughs> I feel like Claude, Claude and I should go on tour. We'll just go, we'll go. Uh, we'll ride your coattails uh, to <laughs> so much uh, as much success as possible. 
<laughs> but I just thought, okay, yes, humility, empathy, charity, togetherness, community, also freedom. I don't want to mm. neglect that because I can't help thinking of all the dystopic novels that I read. Who has the power? Who's in control? It's always the people who are reading and keeping the books from everybody else. I mean, you look at Frederick Douglass, you look at his biography, and he's like, when I heard that it it was unfit for slave slaves to read, I thought, well, then I need to read and then I'm unfit to be a slave, right? Mm -hmm. That's where the power was, you know, or, or James Baldwin, another one, um, I read myself out of Harlem, right? Like this, mm -hmm. this idea that you're reading yourself into a state of liberation, like you yes. read to be free from the culture that lies to you, from the advertising that lies to you, yes. um, from the media that lies to you. You read for that kind of liberation of your soul and then you liberate others with you. Yes. So good. We could keep talking, but I want to give the last word to Claude and then Jessica. So uh, a Baldwin quote, um, he says, uh, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. I love that. So this is a poem. It's a sonnet called Reading by Amit Majmudar, and it's dedicated for Jorge Luis Borges. And I love this poem. I'm trying to memorize it. If one of you memorizes it before me, go ahead and post yourself online and show me what it looks like because I'm working on it. But I stand before the books as I might stand beneath the sky. There's stacks and stacks of self-contained infinities demanding exploration. I have neither ladder nor, I knew I would forget it. <laughs> I have neither maps nor ladders to pursue these stars, these books that burn within themselves. That's when he comes and shows me where to start a blind librarian with a lantern and a hand that takes my own he knows the books for me he knows exactly where they are and when he points i know at last where to look the deep sky he navigates by heart and as he shows them to me one by one i find those stars opening into suns jessica and claude thank you so much it was great to talk with you thank you and thank you to all of you for joining us Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reading and the Common Good, a podcast from the Trinity Forum. And don't forget to check out ttf.org slash book club to find everything you need to start your own reading group.